If you would turn with me in your Bibles to Esther chapter 9. We're going to read the first 19 verses together this morning. I'm not sure whether or not we're going to be in the book for one or two more weeks after that. It depends on... uh, I don't know what it depends on, but... It depends on how much I can cover in a short period of time, I suppose. So anyway, uh, we're going to read the first 19 verses this morning uh, of Esther chapter 9. Hear the word of the Lord. Now in the twelfth month, which is the month of Adar, on the thirteenth day of the same, when the king's command and edict were about to be carried out, on the very day when the enemies of the Jews hoped to gain the mastery over them, the reverse occurred. The Jews gained mastery over those who hated them. The Jews gathered in their cities throughout all the provinces of King Ahasuerus to lay hands on those who sought their harm, and no one could stand against them for the fear of them and fallen on all peoples. All the officials of the provinces and the satraps and the governors and the royal agents also helped the Jews, for the fear of Mordecai had fallen on them. For Mordecai was great in the king's house, and his fame spread throughout all the provinces, for the man Mordecai grew more and more powerful. The Jews struck all their enemies with the sword, killing and destroying them, and did as they pleased to those who hated them. In Susa, the citadel itself, the Jews killed and destroyed 500 men, and also killed, there are a bunch of names here that I don't know how to pronounce, but we're going to try, Parshadatha, and Dalphin, and Aspatha, and Paratha, and Adalia, and Eradatha, and Parmashta, and Erasai, and Eradai, and Vaisatha. You can tell many of them end with that Atha from Hamadatha, the father of Haman. So you could tell they're all named after the grandfather probably. The ten sons of Haman, the son of Hamadatha, the enemy of the Jews, but they laid no hand on the plunder. That very day, the number of those killed in Susa, the citadel, was reported to the king. And the king said to Queen Esther, in Susa, the citadel, the Jews have killed and destroyed 500 men and also the ten sons of Haman. What then have they done in the rest of the king's provinces? Now what is your wish? It shall be granted you, and what further is your request? It shall be fulfilled. And Esther said, If it please the king, let the Jews who are in Susa be allowed tomorrow also to do according to this day's edict, and let the ten sons of Haman be hanged on the gallows. So the king commanded this to be done, and the decree was issued in Susa, and the ten sons of Haman were hanged. The Jews who were in Susa gathered also on the fourteenth day of the month of Adar, and they killed three hundred men in Susa, but they laid no hands on the plunder. Now the rest of the Jews who were in the king's provinces also gathered to defend their lives and got relief from their enemies and killed 75,000 of those who hated them. But they laid no hands on the plunder. This was on the 13th day of the month of Adar, and on the 14th day they rested and made that day a feast, a day of feasting and gladness. But the Jews who were in Susa gathered on the 13th day and on the 14th and rested on the 15th day, making that a day of feasting and gladness. Therefore, the Jews of the villages who live in the rural towns hold the 14th day of the month of Adar as a day of gladness and feasting, as a holiday, and as a day of which they send gifts of food to one another. Let's pray together. Father, we ask that you would help us as we read your word today, as we uh, meditate upon it and, and, and contemplate all that you are and all that you do and, and all that you've called your people to do in light of uh, your revelation. We pray, Father, that you would humble us before your word, give us wisdom through it, help us to understand the times in which we live, help us to know how to apply uh, these passages to our lives as Christians today. We pray, Father, that Christ would be magnified through this sermon and that 
your people would be edified. We ask all these things in Christ's name. Amen. The study of history uh, can be a very difficult endeavor at times. That was my major in college. Love history. I know many of you don't. But it's, it's hard because you're never just getting facts when you study history. You're always getting sort of an interpretation of history from one's particular perspective of, of that event or, or their take on its meaning and its significance. Even what you study in history itself is often determined by the professor or the teacher. They want to focus on certain aspects and not others. Nowadays, you'll find that in history classes, instead of Western civilization and learning about empires and things of that nature, oftentimes now we're learning about pop culture. You learn about Madonna and things like that, and you're like, why do we care about that so much? Why not cover the, the more important matters? But again, it's always going to be perspective and what you think is important and what's not. Or even uh, in, uh, like the Civil War, for instance, depending upon who's teaching you about the Civil War, you get a different perspective. Uh, even the North and the South, they would name their battles depending upon whether it's near a geographical location of a town or whether it's near a particular river. So even the first land battle that we have in the Civil War, the North would call it the Battle of Bull Run because that was the name of the, of the water source nearby, whereas the South, they called it the Battle of Manassas because that was the closest town nearby. And so as a Southerner growing up in Southern schools, you learned how about how great the Southern generals were and all their tactics and their schemes of warfare, and, and you were like, yay, you would, you know, be excited about that. And then all of a sudden I took a class in the North, and, and they told me the North won. And I thought, they're very confused about how this all went down. Um, but, but you can tell that, you know, it's, it's, uh, it's a difference in perspective as far as that goes. But what the two had in common, at least, in both my classes in the North and the South, they both focused on the details of the battle themselves. They were very excited to tell us about the different feints and the different uh, schemes that they were trying to uphold. And as you could tell, both of them were really big into military history. And if someone really likes the history of warfare, the book of Joshua is a great book to read in the Bible because you get quite a bit of those details of the different uh, uh, deceptions and, and different schemes of, of warfare. But the book of Esther is not at all concerned about the war itself. It's not at all concerned about any battles. Uh, uh, the, the, the author is, is, has a different perspective altogether. In fact, uh, in the first couple chapters uh, of the events that are recorded in the book of Esther, uh, one of the greatest series of wars that ever took place in ancient times of the, the, the Greco-Persian Wars doesn't even mention it. And you're like, how could he not mention that? It's so huge, and it affects some of the events that take place in the book of Esther, but the, the author doesn't care about that at all. And then finally we get to the most important day that the book of Esther has been building and building and building to this day in which the enemies of the Jews seek to wipe out the Jews entirely. And out of all, all of this sort of excitement, momentum, fear, anxiety, all of that wrapped into one, the author finally gets to the battle itself in verse 1 and summarizes the whole thing in a sentence. No details whatsoever. I mean, look at the preface. He says, now in the twelfth month, which is the month of eight, or on the thirteenth day of the same, when the king commanded and the edict was about to be carried out, on the very day when the enemies of the Jews hoped to gain the mastery over them, the reverse occurred. That's all you got. The reverse occurred. The Jews gained mastery over those who hated them. That's it. The whole book of Esther has been pointing to this day, and that's not the important part. Uh, rather, what we would normally consider the mop-up operations and then even the feast and the festival that take place afterwards, that's what the author is concerned about. And so we don't see any of the details of the battle itself. Very concise telling of, of, of that battle. 
But don't think for a moment in any way that the author doesn't share those details because he's concerned or ashamed somehow of what actually took place when the Jews slaughtered their enemies in the streets of Susa and throughout the rest of the Persian Empire. Uh, The author doesn't seek to make any excuses on their behalf, but is actually expecting the readers to cheer of the victory that takes place here. In fact, um, uh, if you're a Jew and you uh, grow up celebrating the Feast of Purim, which takes place in the winter uh, each year, um, every synagogue, they read the entire book of Esther every year. And as it's being read, the uh, uh, one of the leaders of the synagogue is dressed up as one of the figures. Many people are actually dressed up as like Batman and all sorts of other things too. It's really kind of crazy. It's very uh, raucous crowd there. Um, but every time the name Haman is mentioned, everybody immediately goes, boo, hiss. And then if, if uh, Mordecai or Esther, woohoo, yay, are always mentioned every time their names are, are, are happening. So it's really, uh, it's a very exciting time as they retell the story. But it's a very comforting book for believers, not because the events somehow are meant to be normative for our day in the sense that we're all supposed to take up the sword and kill our enemies who hate us, but rather because it's a foreshadowing of the day of judgment in which God finally has His Son return to earth, claim the throne, and bring His vengeful judgment upon all those who have stood against him and against his people, shedding their blood upon the face of the entire earth. That's probably not a message that you hear often, especially not in the news today. But it's not a revenge story, if you will, uh, made by men, but rather a tale of God's judgment upon all of those who seek to raise a hand against God's throne, and particularly against God's people. If you've been following along with our church's daily scripture readings, we've been in the book of Ezekiel. And uh, for a number of chapters now, we've been reading about God's judgment upon the nations for how they have treated God's blessed people, His anointed ones. And Ezekiel has devoted eight chapters to this. And if you remember when we were in our study of Isaiah, he devoted ten chapters to God's judgment upon the nations. And then Jeremiah likewise devoted a number of chapters Uh, to the same matter. Some of the minor prophets, their book is entirely devoted to a judgment upon a particular nation for how they have treated Israel. And then finally when we get to the New Testament, when we're reading through the book of Revelation, he's using the same language as that was used by the prophets in the Old Testament to describe God's judgment upon all the earth for how they have treated God's rule and God's people. So when we read the book of Esther, we have to understand this is not an innocent group of people that the Jews are slaughtering, first of all. Uh, They have come under the judgment of God for how they have treated God's people. This is not a petty brawl. This is what we refer to as a holy war in Scripture. And it's a very common term that's used throughout. But the Jews are fighting in defense of their own lives, but they're also fighting on behalf of God to bring God's justice to those who refuse to repent of their sins. So they're seeking to defend themselves, the Jews are, against the people who sought to exterminate them, and literally against the people who had nine months to change their minds. Remember, Mordecai has written a counter-edict to the one that was originally written to let the enemies of God know 
that if they pick up their sword against the Jews, the Jews can gather and defend themselves and kill them and their women and their children too. And yet, nevertheless, these people still want to exterminate the Jews. So the Jews are not killing an innocent group of people here. In fact, in verses 2 and 3, we probably see some of the greatest fingerprints of God throughout the entire book. Um, If you remember, God's name is never mentioned uh, throughout the book of Esther, but we see here that no one can stand against the Jews for fear of them had fallen on all people, and that the fear of Mordecai in particular fell upon all the officials of the land who actually came to the assistance of the Jews. Even though uh, God isn't explicitly referenced here, it's a strong allusion to God's help because this is, this is language that's constantly used throughout the Old Testament to refer to the act of God intervening on behalf of His people. So for instance, he, he, he mentions the, the fear of the Jews and the fear of Mordecai falling on people. Uh, it's another way of saying the fear of the Lord fell upon the same group of people. And in fact, that's how Jacob uses it in Genesis chapter 31 when he's trying to explain his successes against his uncle Laban who was trying to take advantage of him. He says this, Genesis 31:42. He says, If the God of my father, the God of Abraham, and the fear of Isaac had not been on my side, surely now you would have sent me away empty-handed, but God saw my affliction and rebuked you. The same way, the fear of Isaac and now the fear of Mordecai, the fear of the Jews has fallen upon all of their enemies so that, he says, no one could stand up against them. Again, that's another common phrase that's used throughout the Old Testament, particularly in the book of Deuteronomy later on in Joshua, when Moses is encouraging the Jews to fight against the Canaanites, saying this, the Lord will bring kings into your hands. And you shall make their name perish from under heaven. No one shall be able to stand against you until you have destroyed them completely. So by using that same language here, the author of Esther is showing that God is indeed intervening on their behalf. He is helping them to defeat their enemies. Look in verse 6. There we're told that the Jews killed 500 men in the capital city alone and sought their harm. In addition to that number... Then we see the listing of all those names that I can't pronounce. Now, likely, they were all antagonistic to the Jews themselves. Now, we don't know that for sure. They could have just been um, uh, just part of that family, if you will. But in order for someone to be an innocent member of Haman's family, he literally would have to deny his father uh, in order to take that stand, right? So uh, if you remember uh, Shakespeare's... um, Romeo and Juliet, you remember when Juliet is, is telling Romeo in her uh, soliloquy, basically, you know, deny thy father and deny thy name. Literally, that's what would have to happen for Haman's sons to separate themselves from this wicked scheme. Uh, that's exactly what Ruth the Moabitess does, right? She, she separates herself from her people in the same way we see that Rahab separates herself from the Jerichoans so that, too, she can be saved and redeemed in that sense. Apparently, Haman's sons didn't do that. They wanted to, again, enter fully into the same uh, lust-filled violence as their dad, and as a result, they experienced an untimely death, every single one of them being brought to justice. What's interesting about this is the fact that every single one of Haman's boasts now have come to naught. You remember when he was boasting to his wife and to his, his friends, his counselors of his great wealth, of his great honor, of all of his sons, and all these things. And now 
what we see is that his wealth has been given to Esther, his honor has been given to Mordecai, his body's been given to the worms, and now his sons are given to slaughter. Poetic justice has been served. God has shut the mouth of the boastful and the wicked. And he will. He always will. But the author's quick to point out, again and again, that the Jews never laid hands on any of the plunder. Another sign that this is a holy war. This is not just some petty brawl between two different peoples. It's an evidence that the Jews saw this as holy war because if it's holy war, then the Jews can never lay hands on any of the spoil because it all belongs to God. You remember um, back in Genesis, Abraham, when he was first fighting to uh, reclaim his people from uh, the enemy, and he was in league, if you will, for a time with the, the kings of Sodom and a number of other kings. And, and the king of Sodom wanted to give him some of the extra uh, spoils of war, and he refused because this was a holy war. He did not want to take any of the spoils that belonged to God and, or to say in any way that the wicked made him wealthy. In the same way, the two times in Scripture that we see someone taking something that belongs to God, it never ends well. Remember Achan? Right uh, After the battle of Jericho, Achan takes some of the silver and hides it in his tent, and immediately he and his whole family suffer the, the wrath of God because of it. In the same way, King Saul, right? King Saul, in reference to the Amalekites, he was supposed to slaughter all the Amalekites that had uh, attacked them ruthlessly, and yet he didn't follow through with God's holy war and sought to keep some of the spoil himself and even to preserve the life of the king as a result he himself is slaughtered along with his sons. Strangely, King Ahasuerus seems to be very excited about all this bloodshed. If you look at him again, just a very unusual guy. He seems to be impressed by the day's events, wants to know exactly how many people have been killed, and then when he finds out the number of people that have been killed, he says, how can I help you more? These are his own citizens. Again, the guy's a megalomaniac. He's crazy. And yet, he's now ready to have, happy to help in any way possible. But this time, he actually gives Esther another blank check. Do whatever you want. Tell me what you want. I'll give it to you. And Esther actually takes him up on it and asks for another whole day in the city of Susa to attack their enemies and also asks to take down every single one of Haman's sons that had been lying on the ground and to put them up on the gallows in the same way that their dad suffered that same fate. It's fascinating. A, a number of the commentators try to make it seem as if now Esther's just being petty. That Esther has sort of lowered herself to the level of her enemy and is now just looking for revenge. But I don't think that's the case at all. In fact, because it's a holy war, the ones fighting against them are to be exterminated. They're to be eradicated. And that's exactly what they're called to do. Do you remember in the book of Joshua? When, uh, was it the Amorites that had attacked them? And Joshua asked for another day to finish mopping up all the, the battles. And so what does he ask? He asked for the sun to stand still in the sky for 24 more hours so that he can finish the work that God had called him to do to carry out this holy war. Esther's now doing the same thing. She's asking, give me another day. Instead of asking for a miracle from God's decree, she's asking for a human decree from her husband to give her the same right and he gives it to her because she wants to finish what had been started. The same way Esther asked for the sons of Haman to be put upon the gallows, again, not just in a sense of revenge, but as a sure sign 
of God's displeasure with them. You remember what we're told in Scripture, that cursed is everyone who is hung on a tree. She wants to, everyone to know these are cursed by God. She's implementing that judgment upon them in that, that same way. But also to serve as a warning for the other enemies. You'll notice that in this extra day of fighting that the king grants to her, uh, there are another 300 men that are slaughtered in the city of Susa. So somehow Esther knows something's going on, that there are actually others that have yet to be confronted that are also plotting and planning to kill the Jews. Probably Mordecai had found something out about it, and as a result, she asked for that extension of time to make sure that that doesn't occur. And as a result, anyone else who would be tempted to raise their hands against the Jews would be full of fear. And so it puts an end to it. Then throughout the rest of the Persian Empire, 75,000 enemies are killed. And we're told that as a result, there's a difference in, in uh, how the rest of the empire celebrates the Feast of Purim compared to those in Susa who get that extra day of fighting, if you will. But we're going to focus on that next week. Uh, for now, I want to talk a little bit about how can we apply this. <laughs> it's an interesting passage to read, but uh, everyone, I want you to go home and get your sword out of its scabbard and start uh, going after everyone that you don't like. Uh, uh, this crusades all over again, right? Uh, it's, it's hard to uh, apply some of these passages. These are not meant to be normative. Uh, know that from the beginning. Uh, we read in Matthew chapter 26, verse 52, that when Peter saw the men coming to take Jesus, Jesus captive, right? He takes out the sword, cuts off the ear of one of the high priest's servants. Jesus says, put away your sword, for all who take up the sword will perish by the sword. Now that's not to say you can't defend yourself. We still have the right to defense in that sense. But nevertheless, our, our goal is never to go and annihilate all those that disagree with us, all those who reject God and reject His kingdom. Uh, that is not what we're called to do. In fact, Jesus tells us explicitly to love our enemies, to love those who hate us and love those um, that persecute us, to do good to them uh, that seek to do us harm. In fact, there when you, when you read the New Testament epistles, the Apostle Paul begins to focus on a different enemy entirely than those that just stand up against us and against our faith. Ephesians 6, verse 12, we're told very plainly that we're not to take on fights against flesh and blood, that we're not looking to pick up the sword and to slaughter men in that way, but rather our fight is against what? The cosmic rulers, the authorities, the powers of this present darkness against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Know this, that for every enemy that has ever hurt you, there's always a more powerful enemy who stands lurking behind them in the shadows. That's the enemy that we're to focus on. In fact, um, in Colossians 2.15, a very interesting passage where the Apostle Paul says this, At the cross, Jesus disarmed the cosmic rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him, that's in his body. In other words, what happens to Haman and his sons by shaming them before everyone, triumphing over them in every way, this is what Jesus did to the cosmic powers, to the demons and those dark forces that are at work in our society. Somehow, through his suffering, through his humiliation, they are the ones who are now being shamed. He won the victory through the greatest moment of his own weakness. And this is what we're to focus on. 
Um, so we're never told to, to, to gather together in battle units. You're not going to find me saying, well, you know, I, we start calling you battalions and you're going to go out and attack Fenton and you're going to go out and attack Linden. We're just going to slaughter everybody. Now, someone's going to listen to the sermon out of context and say, that's what I said. That's why I'm not going to be a politician. They'll always get me. But we're not called to do that. Jesus already attacked our enemy. Already won. Already has claimed the victory. And so now he, he tells us to go out under his authority, having won the battle already, to declare his victory. That's our calling. Not to go out and fight men, but rather to tell them that Christ has already won men. Has already won the battle. Why? Because this is the day of salvation. This is the year of jubilee. This is the age of grace. This is the, the time of God's patience. Even with the chief of sinners, we're told to go out and share the good news with the world that Christ has claimed the victory through the cross. Just as the Jews, it's interesting, the Jews remember the Feast of Purim through the lots that were cast, right? So you think of it sort of like dice. You know, does anybody still put dice up in their mirror in their car anymore with the big old dice? You know what I'm talking about? Is that a 70s thing or was it before then? I don't know. But that was the dice, the lots were the symbol of their victory that when the pagans thought that they had won, thought that they had such a, a wise scheme to take out the Jews, it was through that moment of helplessness that we find that the Jews actually won the victory. God turned the tables, reversed everything, made the masters the servants, the servants the masters. Well, in the same way, Christians now use the cross, the symbol of the greatest weakness, the greatest foolishness, and then turns it over, and there's a new message of hope. Good news that even in the darkest of times, there's hope for those enslaved to their sins. Again, just as these events aren't normative, neither are they normal in the sense that you should expect God always to defend the believer every time they suffer. Or even to defend uh, you know, the Jews. You think, of, um, you think of World War II, right? Uh, one of the biggest reasons why you see a lot of Jews, I think, that have walked away from their faith is because of World War II. Right? What happened under the Nazi regime, millions of Jews suffered. Many of them lost their lives at the hands of the Nazis, and it seemed as if God was not there. It's interesting, though, if you continue on with that historical event. Did you know that Hitler was scared of the book of Esther? He literally declared it illegal to celebrate the Feast of Purim the day after the, the crystal knock was, was passed, the day after he, he rounded up all the Jews. You could not celebrate the Feast of Purim. Even in the prison cells, you, you would immediately be slaughtered. And as a result, he also outlawed the book of Esther. Not sure how he did that, but you couldn't read the book of Esther. It was impossible to read the book of Esther, or else you'd be immediately... It was a capital crime to read the book of Esther because he was concerned that if somehow the Nazis ended up losing the war, there would be a new feast of Purim celebrated, which is actually what happened. It's interesting, uh, sort of trivial knowledge. 23 Nazi criminals were put on trial in 1946 in Nuremberg for their, for their crimes. Somehow only 10 ended up facing execution. 
and they were all hung. They weren't given the electric chair. They weren't shot by a firing squad. They were all hung. You see any symbolism there? <laughs> Even their ringleader, uh, Julius Stryker, um, as he, uh, one of the Nazis, as he's ascending the platform of the gallows just prior to his hanging, he curses the trial as nothing more than a Purim fest. That's literally the words he uses. He understands something's going on here that's well beyond his control. That God, even though God didn't intervene in the midst of as it was happening, clearly he's bringing him to justice. But he doesn't repent. Very sad. But this is the day of salvation. This is the year of Jubilee. God can take a Saul and turn him into a Paul. God can take even the most wicked of men that have become our enemies and turn them into a friend of God. I always think it's funny, you know, being a history major, uh, when people tell me, uh, or I've heard in, the, you know, in public venues, when uh, someone who's antagonistic to Christianity says, you're on the wrong side of history. I'm like, oh, whatever. <laughs> wrong side of history. I may have been on the wrong side in the South for the Civil War. I'll grant you that. I'll grant you that. But those who stand against the Lord and against his anointed ones, they'll see they're standing on the wrong side of history. It doesn't end the way they think it's going to. In fact, the, the passage that we read earlier was the same passage we read a few weeks ago, Revelation 14. You're seeing this angel with a sickle in his hand, and he's swinging it across the earth, gathering this great harvest of grapes to be thrown into the winepress of God's wrath. And when the winepress is then trodden outside the city, we're told that the blood flowed from the winepress as high as a horse's bridle for 1,600 stadia. Don't you love how they keep it in language we have no idea what they're talking about? As high as a horse's bridle for 1,600 stadia. What does that mean? Well, it's always good to have people, I don't know, like Dan Canars and others who like to figure these things out mathematically and engineering-wise. I read an article online this week from one of those guys, some crazy mathematician guy. So 1,600 stadia comes out to about a 200-mile radius, okay, in American standard measurement, I guess you could say. Um, horse's bridle is somewhere between four and six feet tall, so let's say five feet, right? So this guy figured out, okay, a 200-mile lake, five feet deep. He then divides that number by the average amount of blood in a human body, which apparently is five liters, and then determined that it would take how many bodies to be slain in order to accomplish that amount of bloodshed, all right? The number he came up with was 83 trillion, 901 million, 117 million, 930,000 people to obtain that amount of blood, which is 12,000 times the current population of this earth. Now, I know that Revelation is not meant to be interpreted literally at all points. There's quite a bit of symbolism in there, but still, that's a lot of blood. That's a whole lot of blood, a whole lot of death. Jesus said in Matthew 7, verses 13 and 14, Enter by the narrow gate. For the gate is wide, and the way is easy that leads to destruction, and those who enter by it are what? Many. That's much bloodshed. In fact, if you look at the, the picturing of the Christ who is to come in Isaiah chapter 63, and then we see it later when we read Revelation 19, you're seeing this figure dressed 
in white robes that are now completely covered in blood. His, his, it's a crimson stained robe he's wearing. And he's trampling the wicked in his wrath. There's a sword coming out of his mouth. There's fire in his eyes. And whatever vision you had of the humble, meek Jesus is something other altogether now. It's one of the reasons why I don't have a picture of Jesus on my wall because I know whatever picture it is was something of what He was in His incarnation. And even that wasn't a legitimate picture of who He is. But when He comes back, He comes back as the righteous judge of all the earth and He's coming back in vengeance. No one will be able to stand before Him on the day of His wrath. And then even when He's done with that, after that bloodshed occurs, it says, then then he will throw them in the fiery pit, the fiery lake, where they will be tormented day and day, forever and ever. Anyone whose name is not found written in the book of life will suffer in this way eternally. Indeed, those whose names are not written in Christ's book will be on the wrong side of history. Therefore, it behooves us to tell the true story of the gospel of Jesus Christ. This is the day of salvation. This is the age of grace. God has been so patient with us in our multitude of sins. But there's coming a day in which he will finally bring his righteous wrath upon all the earth. So it behooves us to tell the truth. Not to water it down, not to empty of it. its power, trying to make it more palatable to the supposed sophisticated and wise people of this world, but to preach the offense of the cross of Jesus Christ. It's only through the offense of the cross that you can be saved. You have to admit, I'm the sinner. I'm the rebel who deserves God's condemnation. And it's only because of the grace of Jesus Christ that a preacher is telling you this now. He's telling you, this is the day of salvation. Trust in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Even the greatest of sinners can be saved because His blood atones for all of our sin. But if you choose not to humble yourself and to reject the Savior of the world, all that's left for you is the judgment that He has foretold. So I encourage you, today is the day of decision. Today is the day of salvation. Don't walk out of here not knowing where you stand. Christ is the Savior of the world. Amen. But He's also the judge of the world. He's both. And that's why we preach both here at the church. Let's pray together. Father, we ask that You would help us to be honest with ourselves, uh, to be honest with our own condition, knowing that uh, as, as highly as we think of ourselves, we're nowhere near what we ought to be in terms of your law and what you require of us. We have fallen so short of your glory. We have fallen so short of even our own expectations for ourselves. We cannot love you. We cannot love our neighbor as ourselves. We cannot stop sinning. We cannot stop being the rebel that we are. Lord, we need a Savior who can come from outside of us, who can condescend to us who can humble himself and save us from our sins from the wrath of God on the cross of Calvary 
Lord, You have poured out Your wrath upon Your Son, Jesus Christ, so that we would not have to experience that day of judgment. Lord, help us to cling to Christ, to trust in Christ,